0: Good morning, New Hope Church. Good to be with you. I have been really looking forward to this um, teaching this week. It is full of a lot of information, and hopefully we can translate that information into hearts of worship. I very much want to uh, process this with you in the way that God intended. I have to constantly warn us to say, Let's not just be academics and approach this from the realm of intelligence and information, but let's also be sure we approach this from the realm of wonders and worshipers. So let's step into that position first. And I'm gonna ask you to pray with me that God will make us first and foremost wonders and worshipers, and then along with that, we process information. So would you do that with me, let's pray. Father, most of us, many of us have come in this room this morning uh, just in a real hurry. We've had things to do and places to go, and yet there's very few times when we need to do what we've just done in the midst of a week to stop and just praise you and lift you higher, to sing a greater song, a song of redemption. So, Father, we do stop right now. We shut down all the things that have happened in this past week just for the purpose of focusing on you, your glory and your worthiness, your honor, your wisdom. We praise you. It's with those hearts we come before you this morning asking that you would really indeed give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can take the truths of your word and Make it melted into our heart, fused, Father, so that we're not quick to forget it. Information is so easy to forget, but experience is not. So, Father, make this an experience with you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the history of earth, many have tried to seize the throne of earth to take it for their own. It actually started with Satan. Satan was the first to claim the throne of the kingdom of earth. You find Jesus speaking specifically about it in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus said, I saw Satan thrown to the earth from heaven. After his rebellion was crushed, after he took one third of the angels of heaven and rebelled against God, God threw him to the earth. That's what Jesus said in Luke 10:18. You'll see it on the screen. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now Jesus himself said, when Satan came upon this earth, he seized it for himself and became the God of this world by bringing sin here through the temptation of Adam and Eve. This temptation made him through the fall of man the God of this world, the ruler of this world. Jesus said that himself in John 12, 31. Now judgment is upon this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Speaking of Satan. Over time, he motivated man after man after man to try and seize the throne for themselves for their own purpose. Attila the Hun, Hitler, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar, the Caesars, all of them trying to seize the rule of the world for their own purpose. They all had one particular thing in common. Every single one of them failed. They never gained control of the whole earth. There's only one who has control over the entire earth and that's the Lord Jesus Christ but his realm over this earth has not yet been accomplished. There's one who's coming, according to the promise of Scripture, that will seize control for a limited period of time. He's known as the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be the most powerful man on earth to ever seize control of the entire planet. And because he's infused with Satan, his realm on this earth will be like none the earth has ever seen. We'll get into that next week in Revelation chapter 6 with the beginning of the judgments upon the earth and the arrival of Antichrist. But first we recognize that according to the Bible, only one has the right to rule and to take the throne. When that moment arrives, we're promised according to Scripture, it's the moment that all of creation has been longing for. Let me point you to Romans chapter eight. You'll see this on the screen. And it speaks specifically about what happened not only to us as people, but what happened to the entire ecosystem of the planet. Romans chapter eight, verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Every time I read of that, I think of the earthquakes. I think of what happened in Haiti. The groaning of the earth. Do you know that the Bible promises that in the last days, the frequency of earthquakes on the planet will increase? So much so that you'll see next week in Revelation chapter 6 that there become destructive earthquakes that wipe out entire civilizations. Powerful, earth shaking events. The ramping up of the arrival of the Son of God. And so we see this in Re- Romans chapter 8 the birth pangs of the planet, the groaning. What chapter five is, is a continuation of chapter four. Everything you learned about last week is one continuous vision and it shouldn't be broken up. When you have chapters in your Bible, those are not in the original text. We put those in there so that we can understand and take apart scripture, break it down easier. But chapter four and chapter five wasn't in the original writings of John. It's just one continuous writing. So what we're about to look at here is a continuation of what John saw last week when he saw the throne of God. You remember that imagery? Sparkling, blazing image. God on the throne. Like a sapphire, he said. Like a diamond. The form of a being. That had kind of a sapphire appearance to it. And it blazed. With that imagery in mind, he continued on into chapter 5. It's this appearance of Almighty God on the throne that helps us grasp what's about to happen in chapter 6, meaning he has control over everything. It's not catching him by surprise. Everything that's written in chapter 4 and chapter 5 affirms to us this was all part of God's plan, all part of his purpose, his majesty and power being revealed to us so that we can take it in. And what are we about to take in? The end of the of the age of grace, God's patience has come to a stop. And he's about to bring about the fruition of the end of man on earth as we know it. So if you have your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse 1 to start with. If you don't have a Bible with you, perhaps you're new here today. There's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And those are there for your purpose. If you don't own a Bible, we really would like you to take one with you today when you leave. So you feel free to write in that if you'd like to so you can follow along with us. It'll also be up on the screen so you can track it that way. uh, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Before I start reading, I just got to tell you, I am so excited for you guys to see the imagery that goes on here today, especially in light of the fact that we're about to take communion. This is so powerful. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, This is a profound picture of God's containment, his sovereign rule over all of history. This book that he contains in his hand, the word for it is biblion, not a book like what we have today. We have books with a binding on the back and nice square pages that we can fold together. What they had was a a biblion, a scroll. It was a piece of leather or a piece of papyrus. It was a very long rolled out piece of paper or leather and they would write down their documents on these pieces of leather. So we see in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this biblion. And when you see the right hand of God in Scripture, what you're seeing is his authority, his rule over the earth. Every time you see his right hand mentioned, it means he's got it in control. What he possesses, no one can take. So in his right hand, his powerful right arm, he holds this biblion. Picture for just a minute, close your eyes if you have to, God on his throne, pictured as John has described, sapphire, glistening like a diamond, and holding in his powerful right hand this biblion, this scroll. What this reminds me of is no matter how strong the attacks of Satan No matter how powerful evil may be, God holds destiny in his hand, not in Satan's hand. God controls it all. And what you're about to see is someone who's capable of taking hold of that scroll. But first, I want you to understand what this is. I'm just going to explain it to you archaeologically, otherwise you might not know. A scroll was a document that was used, much like you might use, let's think of perhaps if you closed a mortgage. Let's say you were gonna buy a house and you signed a mortgage document. When you sign the document, you put your name on it, it goes to some office, someone stamps it and seals it, puts it in a letter and sends it back to you. Usually signed by a government authority, an individual who has the authority to seal it and stamp it and send it back to you because it's recognized as a legal document. A biblion was used commonly in the Middle East. Everybody who lived at this period of time knew what a biblion, a scroll, was. Think of it this way they would take a piece of, let's say, cowhide or sheepskin, shave it very, very thin. On one side, they would write all the records of a document that was about to be executed, okay? A deed, perhaps, a contract of some type. It was extremely, extremely rare to write on both sides of a document. These particular contracts had value to them because somebody had to go to the work of scraping that skin smooth, and it was enough work just to write on one side of the document. When a document had a smooth side on the front and the back so that it could be written on both sides, it was something that was so precious that once it was sealed, it was put away for safekeeping for no one else to view. Now, we're told that this particular document has detailed information because John says it's full of writing. It's written on the front and on the back, so we know that this is a really rare document. So what it identifies for is, first of all, there's detailed information in here, and what's in here is extremely important. At some time in eternity past, God wrote down the destiny of the world, intending that this is what it's going to look like. And it suggests there's a profound nature. This kind of contract now, the other thing that you need to know is that because it was so full and so detailed and written, it was typically sealed with a wax blob. And whoever sealed it would take their signet ring, think of like you might use a credit card when you go to a store today, and they run your number through a machine. They would take a signet ring and stamp it into the wax. Meaning that sealed document belongs to that person. A single sealed document was of common importance. A seven sealed document was of extremely rare importance, belonging only to the officials. And when it had seven seals, no one, absolutely no one, but the owner of the document was authorized to open it. So John's got this vision here of something very specific, this scroll in God's hand, which is a title deed, What is it a title deed to? His creation, a scrolled contract spelling out all the details of how he's going to take back what is rightfully his, what belongs to him. This is his contract to the earth and we see it in God's powerful right hand and the seal tells us something very important also. That it's sealed tells us that this was written long ago Nothing is going to change it. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you see this written about. You also find it in the book of Daniel. Daniel saw what I believe to be the same scroll. Look up on the screen, Daniel 12.8. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. So we have a very rare document that's been sealed with seven seals and put away and concealed until the end of time. And only the one who's authorized, who has the authority, can open it. I found a couple of interesting details that I thought you might want to cue in on yourself. Later today, you can look at it. Go to the book of Revelation chapter 10 later today, and you'll find the title of this book. It's called The Mystery of God. That's what Revelation 10 explains it because it's something that people have longed to look into, but God has concealed it and made it a mystery. And the other thing I find really significant is that it's written. It is absolutely unchangeable. Nothing man does can change it because God has written it down. So this scroll, this biblion, is not only about judgment upon the earth, it contains the detailed information about the consummation of history. Everything that will take place involving the end of man and how the end will come for all people upon the earth. So let's move into verse two. He says this, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Axios. You remember that word from last week? Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So a powerful angel stands up. Who is Axios? Remember the word last week? Axios. When a Roman conqueror came back to Rome, after he'd been out and defeated the enemies, the throng of the city would gather along the streets as he made his way to the capital. And everyone on the side of the streets would say, Axios, Axios, worthy, because he's the conqueror. So this angel is saying, who is Axios? Imagine this. All of creation becomes completely silent at this point. Nothing. No response. The angel's voice just resonates throughout eternity. Who? is worthy to open this. Someone who is worthy to defeat Satan and take this title deed and reclaim creation and bring it back. Look what John saw in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. Powerful angels, Michael, Gabriel, nothing. Think of the people who stand in heaven. Noah, Moses, Job, Isaiah, Elijah, Zachariah, Peter, Paul, Stephen, Apollos, William Tyndale, Billy Graham. Nothing. No response. Because they're not worthy. No human or angel could step forward. And this search of all eternity crushed John's heart to the degree that he wailed He screamed out this word that's used. It's not a simple wimpy cry. It's not like, oh darn, I really wanted to look into that book. This is a sob. Let me show you the definition for it. The word is kleo. It means to wail aloud. Think of it this way, when you think of Jesus, the week as he rode into Jerusalem just before his crucifixion, shortest verse in all of scripture, easiest one for kids to memorize, simply says, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. He sobbed. That's what John's doing here. He's sobbing. Why? Why is he so overwhelmed with grief? What could be so important that if no one happened to look into it, something wouldn't change? I think in the English language, especially here in America, we have so profoundly corrupted words, especially in the last 20 years, that we've lost an appreciation for descriptive language use. So we have to go back generations to find individuals who have written about things like this to say, what's a good description for this? And I found one that I wanna share with you. It comes from a pastor from the 1950s. His name is W.A. Criswell. Pastor of the first megachurch ever in the United States. Back in Dallas, Texas, W.A. Criswell wrote specifically about this passage. It's kind of a long quote, but I want you to see it because it is so descriptive. Look up on the screen. John's tears represent the tears of all God's people throughout all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over the first grave as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, still form of their son Abel. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried out unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves as they experience the trials and sufferings of life, heartaches and disappointments, indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it, that usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan. Failure to find a redeemer meant that the earth in its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant sin, death, damnation, and hell should reign forever and ever. And the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. When's the last time you heard somebody write like that? Can no one step forward? Is no one worthy? No one's capable of changing this? But John's weeping is premature. Look at the next verse. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping, meaning it's unnecessary. Do you remember the word that I taught you last week for behold? I-D-O-O-U, meaning wow! Wow! I can't believe it. Behold! What's behold? Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Stop weeping, John. Someone is emerging on the scene, and it's not a man, and it's not an angel. None of them can redeem the universe, but one can, one specifically The titles that are used here, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah and the Root of David are Messianic terms. They go way, way back in time into the Old Testament. They were prophetic terms attached to Jesus, things that belonged to the Messiah. The Jews knew very well exactly what these titles meant. As a matter of fact, there's a prophecy that's written way back in the book of Genesis about this one who would be called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let me show you it up on the screen. Genesis 49.9. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Out of the tribe of Judah, a fierce, powerful ruler, And these two titles, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David, were the ones that pointed to the one known as the King of the Jews. That's why the Jews got so ticked off when Pilate made a sign and put it on Jesus' cross saying, King of the Jews. They said, take it down. He didn't say he was King of the Jews. Pilate said, yes, he did. They said, no, he said he was king of the Jews, but it didn't really mean that he was king of the Jews. Take down the sign. Pilate said, what is written is written and it will remain. He is the king of the Jews. That's what these titles meant. So we find here this one who's coming forward. Jesus is the one who is worthy to take the scroll. Why? Because he is the one who is the rightful king. First of all, he's from the root of David. He's the one that is from the line of the tribe of Judah. And what he has done, what did he do? He overcame. You see that word in your verse there? Circle that. Because when this word was used of us, the nekao, in the seven letters that we studied just in the last few weeks, it said, when you overcome, you will be given blank, blank, blank. This is past tense. It's saying he's already done it. He already overcame. What did he overcome? what is in the past tense sin Romans 8:3 death Hebrews 2:14 the forces of hell Colossians 2:15 he overcame all these things and so John has this image in his mind of the lion of the tribe of Judah but look what he sees next verse 6 and i saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth you want a verse that'll keep you up at night that one'll do it let me help you picture this john's looking at this incredible scene the throne that you've envisioned already it flashes and sparkles And the one on the throne, crystal clear, with this sea of crystal out in front of him. And these four creatures moving about the throne. And he's told, behold, the lion of Judah will step forth. And he turns and he sees a lamb. He's expecting a lion, but he sees a lamb. There's some imagery here that's going on. What a contrast. This specific word that's used is arneon for lamb. An Arnion means a pet lamb, a young yearling lamb, not a mature one. And this is the imagery that goes all the way back into the Old Testament for the Jews. Because specifically, once a year, they had to take an Arnion and bring it to their family home and sacrifice it on behalf of the family for the Passover. But here's the detail you might not know an Arnion lamb had to live with the family for four days before it was sacrificed to become part of the family so that they would bond with it. So when they sacrificed that animal, it had meaning and purpose. They were sacrificing something they were attached to. So that's where this imagery comes from. John the Baptist understood this when he looked at Jesus on the riverbank and saw him coming. Look at this verse on the screen, John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Arnion of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is no ordinary lamb. Why? He's standing even though he's been slain. Two points I want you to pick up on here. He's standing alive on his feet yet he's looking as if he's been slain. He's got scars from deadly wounds. Here's how you'll pick up on that. John uses a very specific word here for slain. Look at the definition up on the screen. Fadzo, this is what slain meant to them. To butcher, especially an animal in sacrifice, or to slaughter, violently kill, slay, or wound. Wound. Think of the contrast. He's thinking of a roaring lion, and he sees a lamb that's been slain. How many Passovers had John been to in his life? He was a Jewish man. He'd seen Fadziel Arnion. He knew what it meant to see a butchered lamb for a sacrifice. And he sees this one standing alive. And here's something unique about it. It's got seven horns. Have you ever seen a lamb with seven horns? I never have, I've never seen a goat with seven horns. I don't know if lambs even have horns. I know rams do. Two, maybe three if they're really weird. Seven? Seven horns. Horns in scripture speak specifically of power and might. And seven is the perfect number of heaven. So what we see is perfect power. He sees fullness of power and then he sees seven eyes. Meaning complete understanding. I see you. I know you. I understand you. Scripture promises full of wisdom, understanding, and insight. So he follows it up by saying the seven spirits of God are present. Meaning this. Not that there's seven separate spirits of God. One spirit with seven different characteristics. Go back later today to the book of Isaiah and look at chapter 11 and you'll see a definition for the seven spirits of God. The spirit of understanding, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge. And it was said that when Jesus would arrive, when the Messiah would arrive, he would have all seven characteristics. You might have the spirit of wisdom. You might have the spirit of knowledge. You might have the spirit of understanding. Jesus has all of them. The seven spirits of God. So this is what John sees. And he speaks specifically of the full power and authority of the one he sees. What did Jesus say about himself in Matthew 28 after his crucifixion? At the point of when he was to ascend into heaven. Matthew 28 specifically. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven And on earth, remember the word I taught you last week for authority, exousia, power, resource, abundance, ability to discern, judge, authority that's been given, jurisdiction. So Jesus is saying, I have all the power. It just took John until he got into heaven in the book of Revelation to see what Jesus really meant. Full of power. Now what we're about to come into is everything that you've been studying for the last few weeks, everything John's been writing about, is ramping up to this moment. Everything hinges on this particular activity that takes place. Verse seven, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Do you notice that those ones who are exalted, the elders and the four creatures, they fell down just because he took the book. He hasn't even opened it yet. They fell down just because he grabbed it. Understand this. No one approaches God on his throne. No one Angels attend him. The four living creatures encircle him. We praise him. From our pews we stand up and sing to him. No one walks up to the throne and takes something from God except God himself. And I want you to note this. The act of taking the scroll is not why they're celebrating. It's what he did to allow him to take the scroll he defeated death. His death and his resurrection is the basis of his authority. And they understand that. Now we get two little details here that could just blow right on by you if you don't pay attention to it. He talks about harps and bowls of gold. Specifically, when you see harps mentioned in relation to prophecy, and the harps were used in the Old Testament, every time you see a prophet about to make a proclamation about the destiny or the future of something, there were harps present. And then these golden bowls come right out of the temple because golden bowls were put in the temple for the Jewish people, when they would come and make an offering to God, the priest would put incense in the bowls and bring it into God and burn it before him as a sweet aroma. So if you take these two images and put them together, you see everything the prophets prophesied, everything the saints have prayed about throughout the ages, culminating in this moment because every prayer and every prophecy is about to be fulfilled. And they're celebrating because of it. Here's a reminder for you. Every time you pray, every time you make an utterance to the throne, your prayer is not taken to some back closet in heaven. It's brought before the throne of God. You see that right here. Father, we come before your throne. We pray in authority. We bring it before you. That's a great reminder for us as we pray. He hears it and it's brought before him. All the anticipation of the millennia is about to burst forth in this next verse. Verse nine, and they sang a new song. You just sang it. We sing a greater song, a greater song. It's a new song. We sing a new song, why? This is specific. they tell us why. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. There's a center of gravity within music. This is a song. When I was in flight school, we were taught about this principle called a fulcrum. A fulcrum, F-U-L-C-R-U-M. And a fulcrum is the center of gravity in a plane. If you put too much weight in the back of the plane, the plane's imbalanced and the nose goes up. You put too much weight in the front and the plane's imbalanced and the nose goes down. The tail goes up. You see here in the midst of this a fulcrum. Worthy are you our Father who sits on the throne. Worthy is the Lamb because you bought men. They balance it. They understand what's going on here. They praise both because both accomplished a work. And this movement here pictures God about to judge Satan. That last phrase at the end of verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Who's reigning on the earth now? Satan, the prince of this world, has taken control. And this verse says, you will reign. So there's a reversal of fortunes here. Specifically, you will reign upon the earth. And so they sang a new song, Worthy, that's the title of it, to take back the earth, to take this book, and to break its seals. What does that mean, to break its seals? Why do that? Why could he break the seals that we're about to look at in chapter 6? Because of this. Because you were slain and purchased for God, you purchased what? Men from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. There's a specific word that's used here agarazzo. It's a Greek word for the word purchased, and this is what it means. When an individual who was wealthy enough and had enough authority and power to go into the city marketplace where they sold slaves, a person could practice Argarazzo and they would purchase a slave in order to set them free. They may have had a relationship with them and they wanted to give them their freedom. So they would practice Argarazzo. They would go to the marketplace, I'll buy that slave. I've got the power. I've got the money. And I'm going to set him free. So John says, I saw agorazo, I see this purchasing take place and that's the praise that they're writing about specifically and then as a result of that, what'd you do with the agarazzo? I purchased every tribe, meaning every descent, every tongue, meaning every language, I purchased people, meaning every race, and I purchased nations, meaning all the cultures. I've taken it all, those four terms encompass all of humanity. What's the result of all this? The result is you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will what? Reign upon the earth. So you see this completion. This is a foreshadowing of the millennial kingdom when God sets up the thousand-year reign for Jesus on earth, in which he establishes himself before the new heaven and before the new earth are reestablished. Now this is how he wraps it up in verse 11. Verse 11, then I looked. Fourth time he says, I looked, meaning I saw, that I really saw this. I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So to the voices that you heard last week, the quartet, the ensemble has been added. And after the ensemble kicked in, now he hears the myriads of angels. Myriads was a word that they had for the largest denumerative number that they had, 10,000. They didn't know anything greater than 10,000. So they used the word myriad. Well, John can't stop there because he doesn't know how to describe it. So he says myriads, plural, and myriads. Myriads times myriads. Try and use your calculator for that. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, meaning billions. I saw billions. And we joined together with them and give a shout, give a shout out to Jesus. Here's the shout Power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. Because why? Because of the redeeming death of Jesus, he has the authority to take the title deed to the earth and bring it back and spell out all the details of everything that's going to happen to carry out this transaction. Do you know that this entire passage is the basis for why Handel wrote the Messiah? He locked himself away in a room for 22 days. He almost didn't eat at all. They made him drink and eat because he read this passage and the music just poured forth from him. This next passage that we jump into made me really laugh this week. In verse 13, he ends it by saying that eventually fish are gonna sing. Let me show you this. Verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb will be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures heard this. And as the room became quiet, everybody stopped singing and shouting and yelling. And the four living creatures said, Amen. 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 Meaning what? You learned the definition last week. Yes! 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 Amen! Amen! He says they said it over and over and over again. They kept on saying, they're lost in the wonder of the moment. And they keep saying, Amen. Amen. True. True. True, true. The stage is set now. That's the setup to the unveiling of the title deed to the earth. And all the details that will take place from chapter six forward are because the lamb was worthy to take the scroll and begin opening it by breaking the seals. And one at a time next week, you're going to see the result of this. In all of human history, there is no greater knowledge than what you just gained this morning. That the lamb was slain, scripture says, from the foundation of the world, God predestined that you would be bought back. Somebody would go to a slave market, meaning Jesus, and perform agorazo on your behalf and buy you back if you would identify yourself with Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate here with communion this morning. That's the celebration. I hope you never see communion the same way again. We get to celebrate the conquering lamb, roaring lambs. Can you imagine? Lambs that roar like lions. I can't read this passage and not think of what Peter wrote. Let me show you this verse on screen. 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So we get to celebrate communion now. And in keeping with our New Hope tradition, I'm gonna read this passage to you. And then we'll participate. This is what Paul wrote to us who participate in communion. This is, he said, how to do it. Because it was handed to him from who? Jesus handed it to him himself. So this is what he said. Verse 23 of chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's very tempting to be distracted by what's going on. Listen to the warning from Paul. Don't focus on the worship team. Focus on what God said to you. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Why is that warning so important? Lest we take the sacrifice of Jesus Christ lightly, we can be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So what he said is, examine yourself. Look within yourself and see if there's anything that would cause a breach between you and God and confess it before you get up. So if you're new to New Hope, this is the way we do this. When you feel the moment is right and you're ready to get up, come on up to one of these tables or a table in the back back there or up in the the balcony and someone will be at one of those tables and they will say to you, this is the body and the blood of Christ to remind you of what you're about to pick up. If you'll take it back to your seat and just hold it, I'll talk you through the rest. But just take this moment while the music's playing and just communicate with your Heavenly Father. Talk to Him about where you're at in your relationship. I'll pray along with you.